Welcome to Yale Emergency Medicine Podcast. Today's topic is Pediatric Emergency Airway Management. Today we are honored to have Dr. Josh Nagler from Boston Children's Hospital and my new co-host, Dr. Michael Goldman from Yale Children's Hospital, Department of Emergency Medicine. Welcome, guys. Tom, thanks so much for having us. Um, So my name again is Michael Goldman. I'm on faculty here at Yale. I'll just take a second to introduce our uh, content expert, who is Dr. Josh Nagler, uh, whose titles are as follows. He's an associate professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School. He serves as the associate division chief of the section of emergency medicine there. And additionally, he is the director of medical education and the fellowship director for the pediatric emergency medicine fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital. In addition to his academic titles, he also serves as a teacher on faculty for the Difficult Airway course, which is a national course uh, throughout the country, and runs a course uh, at Boston Children's as well. So we are really lucky to have such a a talented expert here with us today. Thanks for being here, Josh. Thanks for having me. All right. So I figured we'd just start with a a brief overview of what we're going to try and accomplish today, I think with an overarching goal of sort of developing an approach together, a thought process, if you will, for how to um, best successfully manage uh, the pediatric patient in impending respiratory failure, uh, and hopefully, you know, guide us through things like the anatomic and physiologic considerations to keep in mind who and who not to intubate, uh, and then hopefully ways that we can uh, have our best chance at first pass success rate. So, let me turn the floor over to you for a moment and just see if you wanted to offer a couple of key points uh, that you think about before intubating a pediatric patient. Uh, sure. I think the um, for people who, who perform advanced airway management frequently, I think the thing I would say about pediatrics is uh, a lot of what you use in terms of techniques and approaches and whatnot that with adults also works in kids. Really where the greatest differences lie are in the youngest kids, and, and th- that's the group you really want to think differently about uh, with, as you described, some anatomic and physiologic differences that are most pronounced. Let's just go over some of the basic equipment issues that come up. Because I, I find that when we first started doing simulation, we noticed that equipment issues were priority number one. At our institution, our institution's been around for a long time, and we noticed that we had all different types of equipment that did not necessarily match up. Um, can you speak to that? Yeah, I, I think one of the points you're raising is one of the, the challenges of pediatrics is that pediatrics encompasses a lot of different ages and sizes, and making sure that you're uh, prepared for that whole range of sizes ends up being important. Um, you're absolutely right that the other piece to that is recognizing what's the right size equipment, what's the right equipment to be using for different uh, patients that you may be taking care of, and thinking about a system that may facilitate that for you ends up being particularly important. Can you give some examples of systems you've seen or ways to organize your department for best success? Sure. Um, I think that many of us have historically relied on mnemonics and memory aids and tools uh, uh, such as that. Uh, And I think that if you use this type of equipment or if you work with kids regularly, those can be effective. The challenge is that if you don't work with kids regularly, 
or in stressful circumstances, even information that's otherwise very familiar to you can sometimes be hard to, to extract. Um, other systems that I find to be helpful uh, commonly used are length-based resuscitation systems, and there's a number of them out there uh, that can certainly be helpful. Um, in addition, now uh, most people carry devices of some kind with them, and there's a number of different apps and other types of programs that are available that can help you be sure that you're using the right size equipment, the right type of equipment for a given patient. Yeah, so it sounds like what you're, you're really talking about here is this concept of cognitively unloading as best as we can when we're faced with a stressful situation. Um, and just to add a little color to that comment as well is that uh, what I've found is there are so many amazing tools out there, and that in and of itself can be overwhelming. So, you know, one thing that my mentors, uh, you, <laughs> have, <laughs> have recommended uh, that we utilize, of course, is not only to use cognitive aids, but once you kind of select ones, to really get to know it, really uh, rely upon it uh, and know it inside and out, not trying to figure out which of the five cognitive aids am I going to use for this procedure, but I'm going to go exactly to the same one every time because I know exactly how to use it. I think that's exactly right. And I, I think the other piece to that um, is that you really want to get comfortable with that aid before you need it, not in the time that you actually need it, because that's a tough time with lots of things happening with your patient uh, to be learning a new system. Yeah, and especially relevant for the pediatric airway. It's such a rare event in and of itself. And so things like simulation and, and the like are, are good ways to get that integrated into your system. So we've we found that actually opening up the code cart or whatever cart you have is really advantageous. I can remember a simulation that we did uh, fairly recently, and we're kind of running through it, and the attending said, well, I would intubate the child. Well, okay, doctor, go ahead. Do you want me to actually open up the code cart? Yes. Open up the packages that are all prepackaged? Yep. Go ahead. Have at it. And that really, for us, makes a difference uh, to be able to hands-on see what works, see if you could find it, even something so simple as the, the tape itself. Sometimes I find the folks put the big red arrow at the feet or they can't find it. For some reason, uh, at different shops, people like to take those cards <laughs> and then you can't even find them when you have a critically ill kid. Yeah, I think I think the point you're making is exactly right, which is it's really knowing how to use whatever system it is that you plan to use and being efficient with it. And, and I also think simulation, as you describe, is a is a wonderful mechanism or simulated scenarios um, to overcome that that hurdle of needing to say I'm actually going to get this equipment out, I'm actually going to use it, because if you've done it even in a simulated scenario, it makes it that much easier to use it when the time comes. And the other thing that's good to have is some type of pediatric champion at your institution. And that's somebody that can, they can help with uh, different cases when they are occurring live, or they can help with, you know, your equipment, um, your processes, simulation. And it's having a go-to person, and it doesn't matter if it's one person or a whole team. Actually, a whole team is actually better. Uh, that's something really to consider. Definitely, definitely. All right. So now I think we got some systems factors uh, sort of addressed. Why don't we talk uh, broadly first about sort of who are the patients that you would think about intubating? I know that sounds like a very straightforward question, but perhaps there's a, a way you think about it. Yeah. I, what I try to do is it's there's so many diagnoses and circumstances and whatnot out there that it's too hard to remember each of those. And for me, it's helpful to categorize the indications for intubation. 
I think of uh, four in pediatrics. Um, the first is failure to oxygenate and ventilate uh, or ventilate. Um, so respiratory illnesses are the most common reason for that, of course, but, but that's really the issue is you're not maintaining oxygenation, you're not able to ventilate appropriately. The second category being failure to maintain or protect your airway. The third category being a projected clinical course. And so there may be a patient that in the current circumstances, not failing to oxygen or ventilate, but you anticipate that that's likely to happen in the near future. And it makes more sense to perform advanced airway maneuvers earlier rather than later. So that's the projected clinical course. A patient with sepsis might also be under this category. You only expect their clinical uh, circumstances, their clinical condition to deteriorate over time. And then the third one um, for pediatrics uh, is to think about transporting the patient or if you need to perform a certain procedure or imaging study. Uh, children, as you can imagine, for example, for MRI can't stay still. And so we may find ourselves uh, intubating children just for the purpose of being able to safely perform an MRI. Who are some of the folks we should not intubate or really have a, a good understanding that this is a patient we definitely um, should not be intubating or give us a little bit of lead time ahead of time and plan for this patient. Yeah, um, cer certainly an important point. Um, I, I think of there being two big broad categories uh, that I like to think about in terms of difficult airways. One is anatomically difficult airways and one is physiologically difficult patients. Um, the anatomic difficult airways, there's a number of mnemonics out there. We tend to use a, a, a version of lemon in pediatrics uh, as, a, as a mnemonic that people will remember. Um, uh, but are there certain anatomic features uh, that make us worry about uh, performing intubation or particularly uh, doing something like RSI where we're going to take away spontaneous respirations from this patient? But then there's physiologic uh, conditions also that are equally worrisome, to be fair. Um, those things may include something like asthma, where um, obstructive airway disease, uh, the problem is getting air out, putting a tube and pushing air in can't be a good solution to that problem and often ends up with barotrauma and other issues related to that. Patients who are particularly acidotic, so DKA um, or other types of patients who have uh, profound metabolic acidoses, those patients are maintaining their pH by breathing heavily on their own. And as soon as we take away their spontaneous respiratory drive, that goes away. Um, aspirin ingestions or salicylate ingestions were particularly worrisome. And then the other big category I always just think about are uh, cardiac patients. Uh, we change hemodynamics during the process of intubation, and there's really the risk of patients with myocarditis or heart failure or those types of things to have profound uh, consequences when we do that. So that's a really good segue to sort of think about the maybe non-invasive or bio-time type of um, maneuvers that you advocate for when you're faced with that type of a scenario. So how are you supporting those patients that you're actually not going to intubate? Yeah. Or try your best not to, I should say. Yeah, right. no, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, I think, again, we, we think about what's the primary underlying pathophysiology that we need to be corrected. If it's oxygenation, there's lots of ways we can think about increasing oxygen delivery and making sure we're maximizing that. If it's ventilation, we can use things like non-invasive ventilation. Uh, BiPAP in particular, if it's a ventilatory problem, can be great. High-flow nasal cannula is used frequently in, in young children, even, even infants, and, and they tolerate it quite well. Um, um, so there's a number of different uh, non-invasive ways to try to support whatever the underlying pathophysiology is that can, as you describe, either buy some time or even in some cases uh, stabilize a patient so that you don't need to move on towards intubation. Do you have any tips for pre-oxygenating these patients? 
So pre-oxygenation is so important, particularly for pediatric patients. It's remarkable how fast they desaturate, and this has been shown um, in uh, all in a number of different studies. Uh, they just desaturate really quickly, and so so as you described, pre-oxygenation ends up being key. Um, we talk about you know maximizing um, a non-rebreather. Uh, there are discussions of using what's called flush rate oxygenation, which is where you really turn up the oxygen delivery coming out of the oxygen port. In young kids, that probably isn't necessary because the amount of oxygen being delivered at 10 to 15 liters is probably sufficient. But remembering pediatrics covers teenagers and young adults too. Uh, and so certainly uh, maximizing the amount of oxygen you're delivering in that capacity can be helpful. And the other piece is that um, although there's limited data at this point, uh, it makes sense that we should be thinking about apneic oxygenation, which is continuing to deliver oxygen even after a patient has been given a neuromuscular blocking drug and they're no longer spontaneously breathing. All right. That's great. Now, let's say we're in the ED and it's 2 o'clock in the morning and enrolls a 3-year-old in respiratory distress. So we bring them into a resuscitation room because the location's important. And they're in the room. We have our whole team there. We have our equipment. Now, can you speak a little bit about positioning of the child and what helps uh, so we get a good, adequate alignment of the tissues and what we want to do? Yeah. It is very much an active process to position a patient appropriately, particularly a pediatric patient, because of some of the anatomic differences. Um, I think we have this tendency to just take a patient in the position they're in and try to work with that, and and that's not always going to be so effective. Um, a couple, a couple, just um, quick things that can be very helpful. Uh, children, young children in particular, infants tend to have a large occiput, uh, so that will mean that they'll naturally flex their head if you leave them in, in neutral position. So putting a shoulder roll underneath them can be valuable. As you get older, uh, similar to adults, it's the actual opposite, which is you'll put something under the head most of the time to align the, uh, the anatomic tissues. I tend to find that if you use the external auditory canal or the tragus of the ear as a landmark to line that up with either the sternal notch or the anterior aspect of the shoulder, uh, that can be effective to know that you've positioned a patient appropriately. Yeah, I think that's a great tip. Michael, do you want to go ahead and go over the case? Yeah, you know, I thought that was a really good discussion so far for some of the big picture concepts. I uh, figured we could uh, present a case to you, Josh, and um, I would imagine as you hear it, and certainly the listeners at home as, as they hear it, perhaps can uh, cringe a little bit as you hear it. So I'm not trying to make it too sensational, but it was in fact a true case. Uh, but I think it does highlight some of the challenges that we face uh, when addressing babies in distress. So just to shorten the uh, the case presentation for you, it's a six-month-old who is an X34-weaker who mom was at home witnessing some really scary-looking events where the baby went apneic and turned color. We call that a brew or a brief resolved unresponsive event. Um, mom actually just decided to use CPR and gave some rescue breaks at home, which probably saved the child's life, and then uh, got to the resuscitation bay uh, and was, again, having these these periods of apnea. It was very clear off the bat the child needed to be intubated you know, based on the criteria you outlined before. Um, certainly wasn't uh, oxygenating or ventilating well and, and had a poor projected clinical course, uh, amongst other things. Um, so the decision was made to intubate. Fentanyl was dosed. And then the report was that there was 12 attempts at intubation um, by someone with experience in pediatric intubations nonetheless. Um, uh, at that time, the critical care transport team was activated. They showed up about an hour later. Uh, and on arrival, they gave um, atropine, they gave a sedative, uh, and also a paralytic, uh, and were able to place the tube on first pass. 
Um, again, recognizing this is a bit of a sensational case, although it is in fact true, um, if you were a fly on the wall, is there potential pitfalls that you recognize which may have potentially avoided such a tough intubation for this, this uh, patient? Yeah, sure. It's it's hard to know the exact details without having been there. Um, the first thing I'm struck by is is that many attempts at an intubation, and I do think uh, it's worth commenting. Um, probably familiar to most people, but increased intubation attempts has been associated with increased rates of complications. And uh, just hearing that someone had you know 10, 12 intubation attempts is just uh, is very disconcerting to say the least. Um, what could have happened that could have made this challenging? I can think of a number of different things. Certainly, familiarity with you know young children is is one factor. Although it sounds like this is a, a provider who had pediatric experience, um, the uh, positioning as we've described already could have been a, a factor if the patient wasn't positioned appropriately. It's very hard to see what you need to see. I don't know exactly what equipment was chosen. Was it appropriate size for this patient? Because that can certainly also be effective uh, or be a, a factor in terms of why there may have been challenges. We had talked about pre-oxygenation. Young children, particularly with events like these, may be at risk for rapid desaturation. So could that have contributed to uh, not allowing for prolonged attempts and therefore challenges from that perspective? And then the other piece that I'm just struck by is uh, it sounds like the the attempted intubation was with sedation only rather than sedation with neuromuscular blocking agents. And again, there are data to suggest it's anesthesia data, ER data, pediatric data. There's a there's a number of studies out there that really support that uh, using both a neuromuscular blocking agent and a sedative uh, leads to higher rates of success than sedation only. I understand the pause that people take to use sedation only, but if you're uh, suggesting a patient needs to be uh, intubated and you're comfortable that you're able to bag them as it sounds like they were, then really using true RSI is likely to be more successful. That's great. And while we're on the concept of RSI, um, could you walk us through sort of how you approach premedications, sedatives, neuromuscular blockade uh, in the pediatric population? Or do you have general rules you take or are there a cocktail of meds you often use? Yeah, there's there's lots of of available medications out there for use in pediatric airway management. In terms of pre medication, the the one medication that that we think about frequently is atropine. Uh, the reason to use atropine is essentially because children are thought to have high vagal tone. Infants in particular are thought to have high vagal tone, and atropine may prevent that. Meaning that when you place a laryngoscope in the hypopharynx, are you going to trigger vagal tone, which will lead to bradycardia, and could atropine prevent that? And I would say that there's some data to support that. There's some neonatal literature that's now supporting that. There are a study or two out there that, that also are suggestive that that may be beneficial. I think it's important to remember that atropine will not prevent bradycardia associated with hypoxia. So if there is a patient who either their underlying disease process or the intubation attempt leads to profound hypoxia and the child, the child becomes bradycardic from that, atropine won't help prevent that. Um, so that's really the only pre-medication. Um, it's really optional, and, and I say the closer you are to zero, the more likely I am to use it is the way I think about it. So I advocate for it for all children less than one year of age. Um, but again, it is optional because the data is not convincing, but it, it, there is some out there. For sedatives, I think there's a number of different approaches that you could use. People are commonly using automidate. Um, ketamine is another uh, uh, commonly used choice. Fentanyl and Versed had been used much more frequently in the past, but is still available. 
uh, as another potential agent or uh, group of agents that people use. Uh, propofol is being used for hemodynamically stable patients. So there's a number of different agents, I think, that are effective as sedatives. And then for the neuromuscular blocking agents, both succinylcholine and rocuronium, I think, are used commonly. If you look at data from across the country, the vast majority of pediatric patients are intubated using succinylcholine. Uh, at patients often at tertiary care centers where uh, there may be higher risks of uh, contraindications to using succinylcholine or potential contraindications may be more inclined to use something like rocuronium, but they're both very effective. That's great. And you know what I'll do now is I will go back to that sort of um, pre-medication sedative paralytics and just dive a little bit deeper with each each one for a second. So for atropine, so PALS specifically, can you just clarify their recommendation with respect to atropine? And, and if anything, do you have like a take-home, like is it less than two, less than one, where you're automatically going to think to use it? Sure. Yeah. So PALS is uh, the newest guidelines from PALS came out in 2015, um, say that atropine is not routinely recommended for the use of uh, airway management in pediatrics. They go on to say, unless there's a population that you think is at particularly high risk of bradycardia. And from my perspective, the way I interpret that, for me, the youngest children are the ones that are at greatest risk of bradycardia. So I tend to say, if you're less than one year of age, I advocate for using it. Uh, after a year of age, unless there's another indication, I don't routinely use it. Uh, so that's the, the pre-medication. That's what PALS would say. Perfect. So atropine for kids less than one seems to be like a safe safe approach. Again, if you're addressing issues of hypoxia, try and fix that first. But yeah. it seems like atropine is a good thing for kids less than one. Um, there was previous discussion in the literature about the use, going on to sedatives now, the use of uh, atomidate and sepsis, and can you debunk the mist, you know, the, the conversation around that for us? Yeah, you know, it, it, there, there's some uh, polarized groups around atomidate use and sepsis, and I don't pretend I'm going to solve that issue now. Um, we do know, and I think everyone agrees, that atomidate does cause some adrenal suppression. Uh, that has been well shown. The question is, does that lead to clinically significant uh, outcome changes as a result of it? And my understanding of the literature is that particularly in pediatrics, that it doesn't, that meta-analyses uh, have really suggested that there's no change in clinical outcome. So PALS will say that it is not recommended uh, for patients in septic shock specifically. Um, uh, we uh, still find that it may be the most appropriate agent in some circumstances, even for patients that we're concerned have, have sepsis, and we'll still use it in some cases in those circumstances. The alternative that people tend to use would be ketamine if there was a question. Yeah, and you know the the kids who get into the biggest trouble in septic florid septic shock often tend to be our our fever oncology patients who may have issues with their adrenal glands just from the beginning, just because of whatever chemotherapy regimen they're on if they're atrogenically adrenally insufficient. So it is something to keep in mind. But it sounds like not an ultimatum, can't use it, but to think about it. Is yeah. that fair? And, and I think what it, what it involves is careful communication with uh, essentially the intensivist who will be inheriting the patient after we've cared for them so that they know that that was the medication we chose and why we chose it uh, and that they can continue to follow along for the patient whatever they may need. Perfect. And then there's, there's some talk about ketamine and hemodynamics, especially around blood pressure control and especially also around the head-injured patient. Um, thoughts around that medication? Yeah. 
ketamine is, is really increased in use since questions came up about this adrenal suppression and atomidate, or at least that's my understanding of when it, it seems to have emerged as, as the kind of second leading agent. Um, uh, we all know that ketamine does cause um, some blocking of your reuptake of catechols. So in, essentially, it's endogenous catecholinergic uh, uh, drug. Um, and as a result of that, heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up. And so you are likely to get bumps in both of those things when you use ketamine. Um, there was a, a paper in Annals uh, by Steve Green and, and Brooke Kraus that tried to address this issue. And uh, essentially, they found that ketamine is still safe to use if you have concern for intracranial pressure with the, ex- with the exception, excuse me, of obstructive hydrocephalus. Um, uh, so I, I think it is still used. Uh, I'll tell you my practice pattern, and this is very much style and not uh, particularly evidence-based, but I have seen other people supporting this style, is that if a patient that I have concern has increased intracranial pressure is hypertensive for age, then I tend not to use ketamine in that population. If you're normotensive or hypotensive for age, I have no problem using ketamine. I just personally don't use it if you're already hypertensive. Uh, but again, that is not evidence-based. That's just a style. And, and how about uh, Ketafol? What do you think of Ketafol and do you use it? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I don't use uh, Ketafol as an induction agent very frequently just out of practice pattern, not because I don't think it's a good drug. I do use it for procedural sedation in my emergency room, but it's not entered into my uh, my realm for, for rapid sequence intubation for no reason other than I just haven't done it before. Okay. And then the last piece of the RSI uh, game, with the medications at least, is this discussion between uh, rocuronium and succinylcholine. And you know, one of the things that I really think about a lot is twofold. Um, one, who are we typically intubating uh, in the children population? But also, two, sort of familiarity with your team and sort of who gets what, uh, who's used to hearing what drugs called for. Um, do you want to speak to either or both of those points? Yeah. I think uh, succinylcholine and rocuronium are both wonderful agents to induce neuromuscular blockade. Um, I think one important point to recognize is that um, at appropriate dosing, they both work very quickly and uh, essentially at equivalent time frames. So I don't think one has an advantage of time to onset, although historically at different doses, that was shown to be different. The difference, of course, will be in the duration of effect. So rocuronium lasts much longer than, than succinylcholine. Um, that can be an advantage or a disadvantage depending on the circumstance for, for either of those drugs. And so I don't pretend that that, that should uh, by itself guide uh, the decision. The, the big thing I think that comes up, and it's important to know that if you look across the country, children who are intubated in emergency departments, the vast majority are intubated at this point using succinylcholine. That becomes important because there's a black box warning saying, uh, be cautious with using succinylcholine to intubate pediatric patients based on the risk of undiagnosed myopathies. Um, There's a a footnote in that uh, black box warning that says, except under emergent circumstances, which turns out to be most of the circumstances that we're dealing with. So that's what allows for it to be used as it has for many, many, many years, of course. So I think to get to your point from before, Michael, it really does depend a little bit on comfort. It depends a little bit on culture, and it depends a little bit on who your patient population is. If you are taking care of patients in the general population, the risk of undiagnosed myopathies or other contraindications in pediatrics is vanishingly small, and succinylcholine is a wonderful agent. If you work at a tertiary care center or in a population that has um, a a different uh, set of chronic illnesses or other reasons that kids may have contraindications to using something like succinylcholine, rocuronia may be a, a preferable agent for that circumstance. 
Can you just speak to reversal agents? Yeah. Um, there's a medicine called I say Sugamidex. I've heard people say Shugamidex. I don't okay. pretend I know how to pronounce it, um, uh, which is a reversal agent. It works for rocuronium or vecuronium, for those of you out here who use vecuronium. Um, it's a remarkable agent. It's been available in Europe for 10 years, uh, and it's only recently made its way past the FDA in the United States. I don't know uh, what the delay was there. Um, the data will suggest this. If you give someone rocuronium, you wait three minutes. This was the study protocol. Wait three minutes and then give them Sugamidex. Those patients will have spontaneous respirations faster than patients who are given succinylcholine. So it now offers a potential for a combination of drugs, rocuronium and succinylcholine, I'm sorry, rocuronium and sugamidex, uh, to rival both the uh, onset and the duration of action of succinylcholine. Yeah, that's perfect. Fantastic. So this is great. So, you know, I think we had a, an awesome review there of some of the anatomical considerations, certainly some physiologic considerations around pre-oxygenation, uh, maximizing hemodynamics is also another concept to, to consider prior to intubation for the uh, for the hemodynamic changes that we anticipate with, with RSI and intubation. Um, the other piece I think that comes up frequently and I think was certainly illustrated by this, this case was this concept of really having a firm idea of both who is available to help and what sort of equipment is at your disposal uh, should you run into what I guess we would call here a failed airway. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that anytime you're, you're planning on advanced airway management of a patient, and I speak mostly about pediatrics, but it's true in adults as well, um, there should be a backup plan. And what I would say is this, is that um, the efforts you go to to actually have that backup plan available will vary based on your level of concern. So if this is a predicted routine airway that you're managing just like the last 50 that you've managed, you may say, I have a mental model for what my backup plan is, but I'm not going to go get all that equipment out. I know where it is if I need it. If there's any concerns that this might be a difficult airway for any reason, I haven't done it in a while, there's something anatomic, there's something in the history, any of those types of things, I want my backup plan, not only a, a mental model of it, but I want it available as quickly as possible, and I may go get that equipment out and have it sitting next to me at the bedside. The other thing I'll say is that that backup plan includes equipment and it also includes people. Um, and so it's important that you know who your backup is or what you what resources you have available. And there's a spectrum of what's out there. In um, some larger centers, you may have anesthesia or an airway team available to you. In other centers, you may not have that, but you may have a surgeon in-house or a neonatologist in-house or uh, paramedics who are able to serve uh, a role as your managing the airway, or a critical care transport team that may join you at your facility to be able to help. So I think understanding who your um, backup, uh, what your backup options are, including both equipment and personnel, uh, really ends up being important. So one thing I've noticed in general emergency medicine is that we've really created silos. So we've taken a department that used to be just pick the next chart, and now we said, this is your team, this is your pod, this is your whatever, we separate it. And one thing we've done even most recently is we do we slide back and forth now. Our attendings will slide over like you play lacrosse on the defensive <laughs> side, right? So you will slide to help with that uh, sick uh, pediatric patient or that septic 90-year-old and then go back. And then the PAs and NPs will slide to cover that person and just slid over. And so I think that really works as well as a team, just like you mentioned, who are your people? 
Um, and the other thing I just want to ask you about is location. We talked about where you're going, right? So hopefully our rooms, resuscitation rooms, if you have them. But where are you going to go after that? So I always try to bring up to my team, this patient's going to be transferred. But let's, let's call them, and we'll call them again once we get things stabilized to let them know. Can you just make a couple of remarks about transferring patients and communicating with the teams? Yeah, I, I, such valuable points you're raising. The first is, and, and I uh, thank you for catching that. I didn't raise it. Your colleagues are often a super helpful resource in the setting of taking care of a critically ill patient. Sometimes you don't need additional expertise. You need an extra pair of hands or just a different perspective. And so using your colleagues and helping each other out is is super helpful. I think that's very important. Um, I also like the idea of uh, uh, summonsing a critical care transport team, if that's the best mode to transfer Mm -hmm. your patient, getting them uh, on the phone early so that they can start the process of making their way to you. Um, They can be an additional set of hands when they arrive. uh, And it also facilitates, even if you've now uh, gone through the the good work of stabilizing your patient, it facilitates getting them to the intensive care unit or wherever they're heading next more rapidly. So I think that's that's certainly important. So early communication. And then I think, um, as you described, just making sure they're aware of the circumstances circumstances uh, that are happening and what your plan is so that they can um, offer some guidance if it's helpful to you. Great. That, that's awesome. As I to say, at the three institutions that I've had the privilege to practice, I would just say that the critical care transport teams and the personnel and their medical direction is just an incredibly valuable resource, not only um, from a hands-on skill set perspective, but the sort of telemedicine or over the phone as they're on their way, really, um, if you really think about patient outcomes first and what's best for the patient, uh, I do really look at that as like an amazing consult to have in in the moment when you're going through a stressful time. So uh, definitely pick up that phone early and often because um, they're, they're such a valuable resource. I, I just I, I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the reasons that these patients are so challenging for us is because we don't take care of them frequently for the most part. And that's what critical care transport teams do all the time right. is take care of them. So that's exactly the comfort that they have. Yeah, and that's a, a good transition to the I think our last kind of big chunk of what we wanted to cover with you, Josh. Um, you know, put, keeping your airway hat on for a moment, but then putting on your other hat as a, an amazing medical educator. Um, you bring up this issue of haven't done it in a while or, or sort of the rare event. And I think that's something that plagues pediatric training just in general, but certainly with respect to airway management. And then especially in the community setting where you may get one sick kid a year, uh, in, in, depending on where you're working. Um, you've done some really impressive work about sort of training around the rare event and use of video laryngoscopy both in the moment to help with excellent placement of the tube, but also in training and keeping skill sets up. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of those projects that you've worked on? Sure. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of video laryngoscopy, full disclosure. Um, uh, I think that, that VL can be used in a number of different ways in the context in which you're describing. The way I think of it is pre-procedure, during procedure, and post-procedure. Um, pre-procedure, um, you can use the device with someone with more experience, and they can then coach and guide you um, during your learning of that procedure in a way that's facilitated by the fact that you have a shared view of what's happening. Um, That used to be much more challenging to do when you're performing direct laryngoscopy. It's hard for your supervisor instructor to tell you what to do if they can't see what you see. And so VL now facilitates that. 
I also think the ability to record videos of actual patient intubation. So most of these VL devices have recording capabilities and using those videos as teaching tools, I think is uh, tremendously effective. We actually did a, I think it was a cool study. We uh, developed an airway curriculum for residents at our institution and we randomized them to either get teaching with videos or teaching without videos. And then what we did was we actually saw how they performed on simulated patients. So we used airway trainers. And those, the only difference was that they actually saw videos as part of their training, performed better when they were uh, intubating on these airway trainers. So mm-hmm. there's certainly some power in looking at airway anatomy over and over and over again. So that's the pre. I think during, even if you're an institution where there's not a lot of providers or you don't have airway experts, so to speak, having a colleague there looking at the screen with you as you're performing advanced airway management can be incredibly helpful. Um, In the moment as you're performing the procedure, you may miss subtle things or even some obvious things that your colleague may see on the screen that you don't see, and they can be a tremendous help. They can also help with things like external laryngeal manipulation, or other types of things because, again, they have the shared vision that you have. And then the last piece is post-procedure. Again, recorded videos. What a great opportunity to then review those airway management cases uh, after the case is over, when things have settled down, to see where there are opportunities for improvement or things that went tremendously well when you want to replicate those again next time. That's a really nice framework, yeah. You know, the other kind of small uh, concept that that I think that would be helpful to to hear from you about is, um, you know, oftentimes we're on the receiving end of patients who are intubated in the field or intubating in a community hospital setting. Um, you know, sometimes we are, they arrive and the tube is dislodged or sometimes it's too deep or whatever the case may be. Can you talk a little bit about ways uh, you would envision preventing such an issue from occurring, perhaps the use of cuff tubes? And I, I think that... Um uh, it is a real problem that uh, patients start to move. Uh, we move patients. It's remarkable. Just flexing or extending a, a patient's head can move their endotracheal tube one to two centimeters. And in a neonate or an infant, their trachea is two inches long. So moving at one or two centimeters is not insignificant. And it's certainly enough to, to have a right mainstem intubation or an extubation just based on moving their head. So uh, we need to be careful about that. Um, Cuff tubes can certainly help. It just makes sense that having a cuff underneath those vocal cords is a little bit of an anchor to prevent that tube from slipping out. Now, it's not perfect, uh, but Mm -hmm. I think it's got to help a little bit. So I think that's important. Um, So being careful not to uh, move the head very much. Uh, Cuff tubes can certainly help. And then I think we just have to be cognizant of sedatives and neuromuscular blocking agents. Um, It is uh, particularly uh, common for people um, to, if a child has has neuromuscular blocking drugs on board to not necessarily remember to continue to give them sedatives because they're not moving and we don't see that they're responding. Um, uh, and they may be, particularly if you use something like rocuronium that's longer acting. So just being thoughtful about the fact that we need ongoing sedatives and if it's appropriate neuromuscular blocking drugs, I think is, is important. Yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. As we wrap up here, can you give us three take-home points? Three take-home points, sure. Um, 
I think the first is that children have some predictable anatomic and physiologic differences that if you know that they're likely to exist and address them, you can um, neutralize those differences. Uh, things like the large occiput, things like superior airways, things like large epiglottis, uh, things like rapid desaturation. Um, those are all anatomic and physiologic differences that we have approaches that, that we can um, adjust what we do to make sure we compensate for those things. I think having a, a systematic approach is really key. I think that if you stop and think about the fact that in these stressful scenarios, having to decide doses of medicines, size uh, equipment, appropriate equipment, all those things is really challenging. And so having either length-based, app-based, whatever it is, a system that you're comfortable with. And then the third thing I would say is I know there is, there's this hesitancy, but um, rapid sequence intubation really does achieve the highest levels of success. And so if you think that a child needs to be intubated, it's most appropriate unless there's a contraindication to doing that. You've detected some difficulty that you're worried uh, is not something that you can overcome. Then you really want to uh, perform rapid sequence intubation and not try to intubate children with no medications or sedation only when you can avoid it. Well, that's really great, Josh. And, and we really appreciate your time and insights into this matter. I know it's a really um, nerve-wracking event when you have such a sick kid in front of you. But I think these points that you're bringing up, these uh, really accomplish the objectives of what we were hoping to cover today. So, so thank you so much for your time and insight and uh, appreciate the opportunity of doing this with us. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Yeah, thank you very much. Great.